Welcome to March On, Rustin, an original audio walking tour produced in collaboration between the Trust for the National Mall and Netflix. What you're about to hear was created for visitors of the National Mall in Washington, D.C., but this audio can be enjoyed virtually anywhere in the world. We want to give you the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Bayard Rustin, as well as the participants and leaders of the historic 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It was this event that cemented the National Mall as America's civic stage where all voices can be heard. Narrated by Grammy Award-winning composer Branford Marsalis. March on, Rustin. Looks back at the march, its history, and its legacy as we look ahead to the future. It is now time for you to act. What do you say? Welcome, listeners. I'm your host, Branford Marcellus, and you're listening to March On, Rustin. Today, instead of going behind the scenes, we're going to a journey beyond them. Together, we'll walk in the footsteps of history and meet courageous individuals, everyday citizens who came to the National Mall and stood firm against the tides of inequality. Our first stop is the Lockkeeper's House. This was the base camp where organizers convened and a starting point for the march on the morning of August 28, 1963. Imagine this city corner teeming with placards, boxed lunches, mobilizing pamphlets. Outside, thousands of volunteers and demonstrators streaming in and out across the lawn. It was then that the National Mall, our nation's civic stage, came alive like never before. Yet, behind the spectacle and abundant possibilities this day brought forth, there was an architect, a man who both envisioned and brought life to the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Bayard Rustin, civil rights activist, pacifist, grassroots organizer, singer, and so much more. But before he wore the hat of deputy director for the March on Washington, he first had to be its biggest proponent. To catalyze a demonstration of this kind, Bayard had to unify the varying satellites fighting for freedom and equality throughout the South into a nationalized movement. Here's one look at why. The summer of 63 was a very, very hot summer. There were a lot of things going on in the South demonstrations, picketing in Birmingham, Alabama. The U.S. Civil Rights Movement was at a critical juncture. Despite the Supreme Court's landmark ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education nearly a decade earlier, segregation, police brutality, and racially motivated violence still cast an insidious shadow over the nation. Of course, they had the fire hose, the dogs, uh, on the young people who were protesting. I had to be 14. That summer leading up to the marches, I was actively involved in a number of protests, a number of voter registrations throughout the South, in Mississippi and other places, uh, with the organization SNCC. SNCC, 
or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, led by John Lewis, was continually met with violence despite their steadfast commitment to a nonviolent movement. I grew up in Gadsden, Alabama. Of course, they had the fire hose, the dogs uh, on the young people who were protesting. And of course, they used that on us. In the first half of 1963, there were more than 978 demonstrations in 109 cities. These acts of civil disobedience were met with over 2,000 arrests and resulted in numerous deaths. It was time for these demonstrations to converge. One action, one city, one place, no violence. In 41, you called for a large-scale march. The time has come for another. Nobody. I can handle all the grunt work. Rally the young. We are going to put together the largest peaceful protest made up of angelic troublemakers such as yourselves. All right. So clearly, the march was not something which gained support from major leaders like A. Philip Randolph right away. A. Philip Randolph, union leader for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, wasn't opposed to the march itself. One of his concerns was striking a unified organizational and strategic approach that the Big Six could rally around. In addition to Randolph himself, the Big Six was made up of five other prominent civil rights and organizational leaders. John Lewis, National Chairman for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. James Farmer, National Director for the Congress of Racial Equality. Whitney Young, Jr., Executive Director of the National Urban League. Roy Wilkins, Executive Secretary for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., President of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And for all of Randolph's initial skepticism, he would ultimately become one of its biggest advocates. When it was time to seek hard-won buy-in from the Big Six, Randolph and Rustin were on the same page. They landed on an angle focused on economic progress and prosperity. It was universally understood that this went beyond class divisions. In one of the organizing manuals written for the march, Bayard Rustin and his co-founder, Cleveland Robinson, laid out the aims of the march more broadly. The purpose of the march is, by a massive, peaceful and democratic demonstration in the nation's capital to provide evidence of the need for the federal government to take effective and immediate action to deal with the national crisis of civil rights and jobs that all of us are facing. By July 2nd, 1963, the Big Six officially announced the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. They picked the date, August 28th, as the March date which meant there was less than two months to pull this off. When Randolph was appointed as March director, he accepted the position only if he was allowed to name his deputy. They agreed that Bayard Rustin would be the chief organizer working out of New York. Responsible for both the day-to-day logistical details and strategic coordination required to organize the many moving parts, Rustin quickly established an office in Harlem, pulling together a group of young, talented people dedicated to this movement, this movement and the monumental task of organizing. Among these angelic troublemakers were... Stan Salat. I was heavily involved in the Congress of Racial Equality, 
and in fact, organizing for them. And of course, Robert Avery, our young friend from Gadsden, Alabama. They gave us a job to work in the headquarters. Those professional signs that you see, it was our job to staple those signs together. I'm sure that every last one you see, I either stapled it or loaded it up on the truck or unloaded it on the truck when we got out here to the mall. I, I tell people I touched every last one of those signs some kind of way. Individuals like Stan, Joyce, and Robert recognized the only way to see the change they were yearning for was to take the cause up themselves. One of the major tasks of local organizing was the issue of security. Because a grounding principle of the march was this commitment to nonviolence, security was of the utmost importance. At night after night, we did role-playing where we were training people to deal in a nonviolent way with, with a security issue. And literally, what we trained people to do is to surround someone with a knife or a gun and, if, if need be, give up our bodies to protect the rest of the crowd until some help could arrive. To protect any pacifist from potential outside harm literally meant putting yourself directly in harm's way. Bayad Rustin is the one who came up with uh, an incredible solution. Now check this out. We told him about the Washington police. He didn't have to figure it out. He did anyway. This is the brilliance of Rustin's Marshall program. But we gave him details. And he went to the New York Police Department and the, and the mayor's office and got permission and worked with a group of African-American police officers called the Guardians. So not only did the march have its own security on the ground with people like Sallet running the scenarios night after night, now they also had the support of professionally trained officers who were down for the cause. And we contracted with the Guardians to be marshals for the external security of the march itself. And they couldn't bring their guns, but they could bring restraining devices, particularly handcuffs. On top of that, these officers built out a network. Police arms formed a relationship where the marshals were instructed who to call and who, who to bring in should any disturbances around the periphery uh, result. And even though they were fully prepared for the worst, a clear sunny day in late August, coupled with the body heat of thousands clustered in one place likely contributed to that heat exhaustion. By 11 o'clock, maybe there were 40,000 people. And then from 11 o'clock on, people began to stream and stream in. Now, Bayard Rustin knew how many buses. 2,200 buses were coming. He knew the trains. He knew how many people were coming by train. So he was always reassuring us, don't worry, yeah. people will come, and so on. As we walk along the route mapped out by Bayard Rustin as the starting point of the march, we will hear from people who came that day about what it took to get them here. My name is Edith Lee Payne. I'm a civil rights activist, and I'd like to work to make people more accountable and responsible in our government and for our society. Edith, a young girl all the way from Detroit, was only 12 years old when she came to Washington. I was here with my mother on August 28th. Social media um, websites, there weren't websites 50 years ago, but amazingly, there was still an estimated 250,000 people that came to the march. And that was only done by telephone or perhaps by letter, but it was enough for 
people from around the country to hear the word. I had heard about the march, and I had heard about the movement going on in the South and was very excited about it because, for me growing up, my heroes were the the Little Rock Nine and the students who launched the sit-ins and the Freedom Rides. Uh, so by the, 1963, I wanted to be part of the movement, and so I got invited to a student conference in Indiana. And for me living in New Mexico at the time, Indiana was close to Washington. This is Dr. Claiborne Carson, former director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. In the years following the march, Carson also worked with a group called the Nonviolent Action Committee, NVAC. And they were kind of the SNCC equivalent in Los Angeles. I was able to get a ride with a group from Indianapolis who rented a bus. And so on the evening before the march, I got on the bus with this, this group of people I had never seen before, spent the night riding there. Traveling by bus from Indianapolis to Washington, D.C. usually takes around 21 hours, not including stops. By the time I arrived in the morning, I was tired but exhilarated and got off the bus and started wandering around and following the crowd. As directed by Rustin and Robinson's organization manual, People who arrived by bus were directed toward the Washington Monument as their guiding North Star. I'd never been to Washington. I'd never really been to a city this size, and and the mall is a big place. Just picture what Carson and others must have seen that morning. Hundreds of thousands of women and men congregating at the National Mall in groups large and small, of every race, age, and religion from across the nation. We heard about this great march, you know, and they said, you know, there's going to be this great march in Washington, and we're asking everybody to come. Robert Avery and his friends took this urgent request seriously. They had buses leaving from everywhere, and, you know, we wanted to go, uh, but I came from a family of 10, and so we didn't have that kind of money uh, for us to be splurging on going to Washington. Although charter bus prices were negotiated by Rustin and his team to be less than half the normally scheduled fare in many places, for some, this was still too steep. We started out on the 18th, Sunday afternoon, hitchhiking. As I said earlier, Gadsden uh, is at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountain chain, so we had to go up a little mountain to, to get over to Highway 11, which was the major highway at that time. As we were walking up the highway, we were coming up on the spot where William Moore was shot and killed. And all three of us knew where that spot was. Earlier that year, on April 23, 1963, William Moore, a 35-year-old civil rights activist and Corps member, was found dead on U.S. Highway 11 near Atala, Alabama. Seventy miles into his solo march from Chattanooga, Tennessee, he was headed to Jackson, Mississippi, to ask Mississippi Governor Ross Barrett to support integration. Frank being the one he was, said, look guys, this is the spot up here where William Moore was shot and killed. Said, this ought to inspire us to go on. As Moore marched to Mississippi, he wore signs advocating for racial equality and integration that read, end segregation in America and equal rights for all. Mississippi or bust. A Greyhound bus and several car rides later, Avery and his friends arrived to D.C. around 3 a.m. Wednesday morning, one week before the march. 
So we went into this little restaurant that was open and got a cup of coffee and, and started asking people where was the March on Washington office. The next morning, after several late-night phone calls and a bit of rest at the YMCA, Avery and his friends got up and went over to the National Mall headquarters. It was kind of chaos. We were in an old gymnasium. I don't remember how many people were working there, 30, 35, maybe 40 people, but we had bomb threats all the time. You know, people were calling in bomb threats. So you had to constantly, you know, go out and come back, go out and come back. But uh, uh, it, it, it was great. It was a great group of uh, individuals. This great group of individuals tirelessly planned and managed countless tiny details in order to make this day happen. Given everything that Rustin and his team achieved, why was it that Rustin was asked to remain behind the scene in the shadow of the limelight? Keep listening to find out why at our next stop, the Lincoln Memorial. When you see the, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, then, oh, yeah, I've seen that in pictures, you know, and, and, and you know, you just realize that this is, this is a really historic place, and I'm here on a historic moment. I think it was just that sense of amazement and just wonder. That's the way I felt. I mean, this is this amazement of just look at all of these people. Isn't this great? And... Aren't I so fortunate to be here? Here we are at the lower steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a marble monument dedicated to America's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. As you walk up the steps, you notice different colors in the stone because the architect, Henry Bacon, wanted it to be built with different types of marble and granite coming from all across the country, both north and south. The sculptor, Daniel Chester French was also quite intentional in his design. As you near the 19-foot statue of Lincoln, you notice his left hand can be seen in a clenched fist, symbolizing his resolve to end the Civil War. His right hand remains open, signifying his wish to reintegrate the defeated Confederacy back into the Union amicably. And yet, for a memorial erected to honor Lincoln's legacy and commitment to freedom, on the day of its dedication in 1922, the ceremony itself was racially segregated. Dr. Robert Russa Morton, the son of a man born into slavery and the only black speaker at this dedication, faced censorship. Chief Justice William Howard Taft, president of the Lincoln Memorial Commission, insisted on reviewing Dr. Morton's speech demanding the removal of a section that emphasized how much work was left to fulfill Lincoln's mission of achieving equality and justice for all. In some ways, Bayard Rustin faced a similar situation. As a prominent civil rights leader and the organizer of the March on Washington, his contributions were often downplayed. He was viewed as a liability and accounted a form of censorship by some civil rights leaders due to his sexual and political orientation. 
Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel way in the middle of the air, and a bigger wheel run by faith. Rustin's background is a socialist, former communist, and conscientious objector to the draft had captured the attention of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover enlisted South Carolina Senator and segregationist Strom Thurmond to help him publicize and disclose the details of Rustin's personal life. The idea was, if they could undermine Rustin's credibility as an organizer with accusations of him being a so-called pervert, then perhaps they could destabilize the march itself. And yet, Rustin chose to live openly as a gay man, unapologetic about who he was. Now that Rustin was being recognized as a leading figure behind the march, media attacks were ensuing around his sexuality, calling his sexuality and conversely his character into question just days leading up to the march. Fortunately, A. Philip Randolph came to his defense by convening a press briefing wherein he affirmed Bayard Rustin's role as the march's deputy director and chief organizer. He expressed unwavering confidence in Rustin's capabilities and ensured that the march would go on. Onwards, the march pressed forth, in spite of those who start to stop it. Marking the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation signing in 1863, the march was essentially holding up a mirror to what exactly had been accomplished in the past 100 years since Lincoln had issued this document. For those of you currently at the Lincoln Memorial, find your way to the mid-level entrance of the steps. Do you see the spot to stand in? It was on this very spot, which gazes out toward the Washington Monument, that Martin Luther King Jr. and the speakers from that day made history. Every time I come to the mall, I mean, you know, you, you, you don't really understand a kind of patriotism until you can come here and, yeah, this is Lincoln. This is George Washington, and now it's Martin Luther King. Although King's speech echoes into the present and will forever be remembered, he was only one of many to offer a moving address during the March on Washington. One person cannot change the world. One person working with others can. And I believe that's the lesson of the civil rights movement. This is Larry Rubin, who at the time was the field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. As we listen to excerpts from the speeches given that day, Larry Rubin reflects on how moving the March on Washington was for him. I was an organizer. I was, I was brought up to believe that one way of being human, of being fully human, is working for a better world, working for social justice, that this was part of justifying your existence on Earth. In addition to the big six, who each wrote remarks with a unique message informed by the organization they represented, union leaders, church officials, and rabbis also took a turn at the podium. At the March on Washington, there were more people than ever assembled for anything else in the history of the United States to, to date. And that w- was America. That day at the march, each speaker offered us an emboldening perspective 
one that, to this day, reminds us that we all belong to something bigger than ourselves. That's what I got out of the march, to feel part of the greater society. A. Philip Randolph's opening remarks invited us into what was merely the dawn of a new era. The march on Washington is not the climax of our struggle, but a new beginning. Whitney Young spoke on the power of unity and the spirit of perseverance palpable in the gathering itself. That we meet here today in common cause, not as white people, nor as black people, nor as members of any particular group, is a tribute to those Americans who dare to live up and to practice our democratic ideals and our religious heritage. That we meet here today is a tribute also to all black Americans who for 100 years have continued in peaceful and orderly protest to bear witness to our deep faith in America and in this method of protest to effect change. Roy Wilkins sought to remind everyone in attendance that day of the change worth making and the reason why people came. We came here to petition our lawmakers to be as brave as our sit-ins and our marchers, to be as daring as James Meredith, to be, to be as unafraid as the nine children of Little Rock, we came to speak here to our Congress, to those men and women who speak here for us in that marble forum over yonder on the hill. Speech after speech, each presenter brought a new energy to the memorial stage. As Robert Avery recalls, The person who really impressed me was John Lewis. And maybe it was because we were similar in age, a young man up there, you know, and what have you. And, and John was pretty fiery. Indeed, Lewis's speech was filled with an unshakable sense of urgency. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Patience was a privilege that could no longer be afforded. As the only woman to speak at the march, Daisy Bates delivered a tribute to the Negro woman fighters for freedom with a promise. until we can walk to any school and take our children to any school in the United States. <laughs> and we will sit in and we will kneel in and we will lie in if necessary until every Negro in America can vote. This we pledge to the women of America. And in the audience, Edith Lee Payne, at only 12 years old, was taking her place amongst these women of America without even realizing it. I was amazed to learn that my picture was on this calendar with these famous people like Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Jesse Owens, and there I was on the back cover. And 
I found out through the Library of Congress. I was happy, and it was somewhat of a confirmation for me because the description says a young civil rights demonstrator at a march, at the March on Washington. And as being a civil rights activist now, it was like a confirmation to me that I'm fulfilling my destiny. Looking back on what the march meant to her, Edith also recalls what it was to grow up with a role model like King. We had an outstanding leader in Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who was able to unify a nation that crossed, in a way that crossed color lines and religions and social lines. It was a colonist life. And in order to make a difference, you have to do that. You, you have to do that. Otherwise, if you don't do it, then who's going to do it? As the final orator to give remarks, Dr. King's iconic I Have a Dream speech was etched into the scrolls of history and impressed upon the minds of millions from that moment forth. One of those minds was none other than... Vincent C. Gray. Former mayor of the District of Columbia and one of its current council members in the year 2023. At the time, though, Vincent Gray was a college student at George Washington. I was actually the first African-American in a fraternal organization uh, at George Washington University. And what a stark reality that was. You know, of 15,000 students, there might have been uh, 25 African-Americans on that that campus. And here we were right in the shadow of the White House and uh, experiencing some of the, uh, you know, most stark and worst forms of segregation uh, imaginable. Despite being one of the few black students on campus, Vincent found a group of peers from George Washington and Howard to attend the march with him. Being in that environment and deciding to, to try to get through it, it was an opportunity to come to this, uh, the March on Washington, you know, and, and try to find ways that we could deal with our own experiences. One might wonder what must have raced through Vincent Gray's mind in the moment he and his friends arrived on the National Mall. I've never seen that many people in one place uh, in my life, you know, 250,000 people I estimated. And to know that many people had come to Washington to participate in this, and some people who I think felt they were at risk uh, to participate, that they may be harmed along the way. So it took a lot of courage uh, for people, uh, you know, tenacity and commitment for people to come and be a part of this. Gray knew then that this was a turning point especially given everything that people were enduring day in and day out. They were seeing, you know, people being attacked by dogs and being, you know, having hoses sprayed on them. Um, you know, and some of the, the uh, ways in which people were treated at the sit-ins, at lunch counters and whatnot. I don't have any doubt that there were people who were, you know, ready to give up. Most vividly, Vincent remembers what it was like to hear Dr. King speak. He reminisces on the impact that King's speech left on those who heard it firsthand. I think Dr. King's speech that day, uh, it rekindled for those who needed it. It rekindled a spirit. Uh, It rekindled a commitment. The motivational impact it had on so many people who, some of whom I'm sure were probably at the threshold of giving up, that they weren't seeing the kind of change in America uh, that they had hoped for. I'm proud to stand up and say, I marched. I was a part of this incredible moment. Following King's speech and a pledge by A. Philip Randolph, 
Bayard Rustin was asked to step up to the podium. A philosopher of a non-violent system of behavior in seeking to bring about social change for the advancement of justice and freedom and human dignity. I want to introduce now Brother Bayard Rustin, who will read the demand of the March on Washington movement. Everyone must listen to these demands. This is why we are here. If you picked up a printed copy of the Lincoln Memorial Program from the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, you'd notice that Bayard Rustin's name was nowhere to be found. By doing so, his name was virtually erased from history in a time when the printed word was our highest source of truth. And yet, his recitation of the demands served as the closing act to the events of the day, bookended only by a final prayer. Recognized for his contributions as a philosopher and introduced by long-term collaborator A. Philip Randolph, Rustin took to the stage with swift and steadfast conviction. He showed no sign of scorn or disdain towards his fellow man for keeping him in the shadows and off the future pages of history. He was there for reasons that transcended the trivial needs of the ego. He was there at every step of the way to ensure that the day went exactly according to plan. Most importantly, he was there to demand change. And now, Bayard Rustin, Deputy Director of the March, We'll read to the man. Friends, at five o'clock today, the leaders whom you have heard will go to President Kennedy to carry the demands of this revolution. It is now time for you to act. I will read each demand and you will respond to it so that when Mr. Wilkins and Dr. King and the other eight leaders go, they are carrying with them the demands which you have given your approval to. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it include public accommodations, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say? After Rustin read off the ten demands of the march, and after the closing prayer was said, the events of the day had officially come to an end. What took two months of painstaking and tireless planning by Rustin and his team had ended in a matter of hours. And yet, at the same moment that tens of thousands were leaving the National Mall, movement leaders were heading to meet with President JFK that very same afternoon, though Rustin was asked not to attend the meeting for political reasons relating to his homosexuality. It was the same demands he read and the desired outcomes for the march he articulated which would be discussed. Even though Rustin was denied a seat at the table, his voice, much like farmers, would still be heard from afar. As A. Philip Randolph remarked in his time, The march on Washington is not the climax of our struggle, 
but a new beginning. If you're wondering what changed after that fateful day on August 28, 1963, keep listening or head over to the Martin Luther King Memorial to find out what happened next. Hey, fellow marcher, we've made it, and you stand on a path of hope that connects the Martin Luther King Memorial to the National Mall. We ask you to pause the audio, cross the street, and march towards the memorial. For those at home, please continue listening. Welcome to the final leg of our journey as you stand in this solemn place. Take a moment to gaze upon the towering statue of Dr. King and read his powerful quotes etched into the stone. The tidal basin shimmers before you, and across from this iconic monument stands the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. Two monuments for two great American leaders, a testament to the complex history of our nation. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, who authored the Declaration of Independence claiming that all men are created equal, proclamation that stands as a foundation of the nation's ideals. Yet it was Dr. King, generations later, who would tirelessly fight to ensure these words became a reality for all Americans. Dr. King and the indispensable force of Bayard Rustin, the man behind the dream. In 1956, Rustin was introduced to Dr. King at the urging of A. Philip Randolph. At that time, Dr. King had yet to fully embrace pacifism as a way of life. There are three ways to deal with injustice. One is to accept it slavishly, or one can resist it with arms, or one can use nonviolence. It was Bayard Rustin, inspired by the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence, blended with his Quaker beliefs, who encouraged Dr. King to accept pacifism. The man who believes in nonviolence is prepared to be harmed, to be crushed, but he will never crush others. Rustin's impact extended far beyond his association with Dr. King in the March on Washington. He was a driving force in introducing nonviolence to the movement, even journeying as far as India to study Gandhi's teachings. And his journey didn't stop at the civil rights movement. In the later years of his life, he shifted his focus towards the fight for gay rights, becoming an advocate and activist. In 2013, he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. Bayard uh, had an unshakable optimism, nerves of steel, and most importantly, a faith that if the cause is just and people are organized, nothing can stand in our way. In the 60 years since the historic March on Washington, Rustin's legacy has emerged in a new story within the civil rights movement. Openly celebrated and granted the place in history he deserves. Oh. 
So, what happened after the march? The movement was reignited. With the words and music still ringing in their ears, demonstrators boarded buses and trains for their journeys home. For SNCC field director Larry Rubin, he returned to Mississippi to continue his voter registration efforts. I don't think I would have returned to the South. Many would return to the same hardships and discrimination that had prompted them to join the March on Washington. But the legacy of that day endured and increased popular support for the civil rights movement. The march just gave me faith that things were changeable. No matter what we went through, that it was, it was worth making that change. In the months thereafter, ongoing demonstrations and violence continued to pressure political leaders to act. Following President Kennedy's assassination on November 22, 1963, Lyndon Johnson broke through the legislative stalemate in Congress. Two very important pieces of legislation passed after that that were attributed to that march, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, a landmark piece of legislation, was passed. This act prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It was a direct response to the demands voiced by Bayard Rustin at the march. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it include public accommodations, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say? And yet, the March on Washington was not the culmination of the movement. It was the catalyst. The struggle for civil rights continued, and in the years following, one of the most iconic events took place in Selma, Alabama. Two years later, we would have the Montgomery, the Selma to Montgomery March for voting rights. That's Congresswoman Terry Sewell speaking. She is one of the first women elected to Congress from Alabama and the first black woman to ever serve in the Alabama congressional delegation. We should never forget that the price of our freedom was not free. Continuing the movement and organizing set in place in the summer of 1963. The 1965 Selma to Montgomery March for voting rights became a pivotal moment in American history. The images of peaceful protesters facing violence and injustice ignited the nation's conscience. In response, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. The act aimed to overcome the legal barriers that prevented African Americans from exercising their right to vote. The success of the March on Washington and the achievements of the modern black freedom struggle reverberated throughout society and provided a model for social change. At its core, Bayard Rustin showed generations of future activists that ordinary people are capable of accomplishing extraordinary things. Civic engagement is still the way to make social change. You know, I think it's really incumbent upon all of us. The fight for civil rights and equality is ongoing, and the legacy of the March on Washington lives on in the movements for social justice and equality that we see today. As we conclude this march, remember, 
the call to action Rustin voiced at the start of our journey. It is now time for you to act. What do you say? So, what do you say? How will you follow in the footsteps of the great Bayard Rustin? How do you plan to get involved? Stand up against injustices and make your voice heard. Just as Rustin demanded on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, years later, we must never forget that the struggle for justice and equality is not confined to the past, but remains a call to action for us today. Thank you for being a part of March On, Rustin. Stay engaged, stand up for what's right, and keep demanding justice and equality for all. This episode is presented by the Trust for the National Mall in partnership with Netflix as part of the March on Rustin audio walking tour. The Trust for the National Mall is the nonprofit philanthropic partner of the National Park Service, working to restore, preserve, and elevate the National Mall and to create programming like this, ensuring a vibrant and engaging National Mall for all. To learn more or to support our work, go to nationalmall.org. Special thanks to the National Park Service and special thanks to StoryCorps. Interviews from the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, included in the audio walking tour, were recorded by StoryCorps, a national nonprofit whose mission is to illuminate the humanity and possibility in us all, one story at a time. Hear more at storycorps.org.